Chapter Four of the Fortunes of Philippa by Angela Brazel. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Four, The Hollies. I have had playmates. I have had companions in my days of childhood, in my joyful school days. I was happy at school, though the work was hard and the discipline strict. When I try to recall our system of education, I think it must have been somewhat unique. For it was an endeavour to combine the very best points of a thoroughly modern course of study with the rigid rules and exemplary behaviour of a past generation. We learnt mathematics at the Hollies, but we curtsied to our teachers as we left the room. We had chemistry classes in a well-fitted laboratory, but we were taught the most exquisite darning and the finest of open hemstitch. We played cricket, hockey, and all modern games, but we used backboards and were made to walk round the schoolroom balancing books upon our heads. To learn to hold ourselves erect, we had the best of professors for languages and literature, and we were taught to receive visitors graciously, to dispense afternoon tea, arrange flowers, and to write and answer invitations correctly. It was the summer term. Each morning the great school bell roused us from our slumbers at half past six, and woe to her who dared to turn over and go to sleep again. At a quarter past seven we assembled in the hall. Where rows of little blue mugs were waiting for us upon the table, then under the escort of Miss Buller, we all turned out, weather permitting, to go and drink the waters for which Helston Spa was famous. The brisk run through the fields where the hawthorn was opening, and an occasional bird's nest might be found by those who were skilful enough to lag behind, was inspiriting as a beginning to the day. We always entreated for the stile path and lamented when a wet night made Miss Buller declare the grass too damp. And necessitated a walk along the high road, where we must file two and two, in a crocodile, as Janet called it. Why a crocodile? asked Lucy, who was not yet used to schoolgirl parlance. Oh, don't you know? replied Janet. Some terribly clever person—I can't remember whether it was Ruskin or Browning or Carlyle or who it was—said he would any day rather meet a crocodile than a lady's school. So a long row of girls has been called a crocodile ever since. It's a stupid, old-fashioned custom," said Eleanor, who was generally disposed to grumble. At St. Chad's, the girls have bounds and may go where they please, three together. I hate to be paraded like a file of convicts. We look so foolish carrying our mugs. Anyone would take us for a Sunday school picnic. Whether we came by field path or road, the well was quite a romantic spot when we reached it, for the water bubbled up in a clear spring from a rocky basin grown round with moss and shaded by ferns. As yet, it had not been spoilt by having had a pavilion built over it, but was left in its natural condition, under the care of a homely old woman called Betty, who turned an honest penny by dispensing the waters to visitors, and who stood our schoolgirl banter with perfect good humour. Good morning, Mother Shipton. You haven't flown away on your broomstick yet. My broom's too busy sweeping floors, Miss, to be used for anything else. What will you do when we've drunk up all the waters, Betty? There's plenty more, Miss, where this comes from. So I won't deny you another mugful if you're wanting it. No, thank you. One is enough of such disgusting stuff. What I want now is something to take the taste out of my mouth. Betty drove a brisk but illicit trade with us in toffee. She kept a basket concealed under her chair, in which was a species of mint rock very dear to our souls. We were not supposed to be allowed to buy any such luxuries at the Hollies, but at this point of the proceedings, Miss Buller would kindly turn her back and pretend to take a deep interest in the surrounding landscape. Thinking perhaps that the nastiness of the waters deserved some recompense, in my own case, I am certain the combined flavors completely spoilt my breakfast. I was growing fast, 
and was inclined to be a little fastidious about my food. Mrs. Marshall held to the old-fashioned principle that we must finish everything that was put upon our plates, a trying rule for me, for, like many children, I had a horror of fat, and to have eaten it would, I think, almost have choked me. Very fortunately I sat at table next to a girl named Marion Burns, whose appetite was large and indiscriminate. The portions which I viewed with dismay were to her insufficient, so I hit upon the happy expedient of slipping a part of my dinner each day upon her plate, and, like Jack Spratt and his wife, I was thus able to leave the platter clean. Strange to say my little manoeuvre was never discovered, even by the watchful eyes of Miss Percy. Miss Percy was Mrs. Marshall's right hand in all matters of discipline. She was a lady of uncertain age and even more uncertain temper, though, as Cathy said, it's not uncertain because you may be quite sure it's going to be disagreeable. She seemed to regard schoolgirls with perpetual suspicion, and to have a perfect genius for pouncing down upon us on the most inopportune occasions. Were we indiscreet enough to talk in bed, Miss Percy was sure to be passing the door at the identical moment. Were we late for prayers, hoping to scuffle in unnoticed among the servants, she was certain to be waiting for us in the hall. She had a very lynx eye for missing buttons or untied shoelaces. Her long thin nose smelled out directly the chestnuts we endeavoured to roast by the schoolroom fire, and she could catch the lowest whisper in the preparation hour. "'I think she must have eyes in the back of her head, and second sight as well,' said Janet, who was a frequent sufferer. In spite of the strict rules I enjoyed my new life, the variety of the schoolwork, the excitement of the games, and the companionship of so many girls of my own age, were far pleasanter to me than the quiet humdrum of our daily round at Aunt Agatha's. I got on well with my schoolfellows, and I think I was a favourite with most of my class. I am sure, too, I honestly tried to share in that give-and-take which is the essence of schoolgirl conduct. The one flaw in my happiness was Ernestine Salt. Since the day of my arrival she had taken a dislike to me, which she seemed to lose no opportunity of showing. There are many ways in which a girl can make herself unpleasant without giving any actual cause of complaint, and I found that I was subjected to a number of petty annoyances, too small for comment, but which stung all the same. When we met in the ladies' chain at dancing, she would squeeze my unfortunate hand till I almost cried out with the pain. Was it her turn to distribute the clubs at calisthenics, she would take care that I received the one with the split handle. She would try to leave me out in the games, and scoffed at my efforts at croquet, rejoicing openly when my opponents won and making light of my best strokes. If I were unlucky enough to sit next to her at tea-time, she would nudge my elbow as if by accident at the very moment when I was raising my cup to my lips, and would profess the deepest concern for the spill which followed. She nicknamed me Towhead in allusion to my light hair, and had always some clever remark to make at my expense. I kept out of her way as much as possible, for I was of a peaceable disposition and disliked quarrelling, but every now and then some little occasion would arise when I was obliged to stand up for myself, and a battle would follow, in which, with her sharp tongue and ruthless witticisms, she generally managed to get the best of it. As a compensation for this trouble, I had the great delight of my growing friendship with Catherine Wynne Stanley. She had taken me into her bedroom on the day after our arrival, and had shown me her various treasures, the watercolour picture of her home which hung over the chimney-piece, painted by my mother, she explained, the photographs of her family, and snapshots of various horses, dogs, and other pets taken by the boys. "'That's George on Lady. Edward snapped them just as they were leaping the fence. That's Dick bowling. He looks as if he were scowling horribly, but it's only the sun in his eyes. That's Edward asleep under the apple-tree. 
I took that myself, and he was so indignant when he found it out he wanted to tear up the photo, but I wouldn't let him. That's father with his fishing-rod, proudly holding up a good catch, and that is mother pouring out tea on the lawn, with Zelica on her knee. "'Is it a rabbit?' I inquired. "'No, it's a Persian cat. Uncle Bertram brought her home really from Persia, so we christened her out of Lala Rook. Are you fond of pets?' "'We haven't any at Aunt Agatha's, but I used to keep a few when I was at home. I had two green parrots, a monkey and a terrapin, and once Tasso brought me a tiny baby puma from the forest. It was the sweetest little thing, with soft yellow fur, and it purred just like a kitten. But father wouldn't let me keep it. He thought it would be so dangerous when it grew up. So he sent it to the zoo at Montevideo. "'Tell me all about your life in South America. It is so interesting. I want to hear what your house was like, and your black servants, and the forest and the queer animals. Have you no pictures of them all?' I had not, but I wrote at once to my father, who sent me a charming series of views of the neighbourhood, and enough pocket-money with them for me to be lavish in the matter of frames, so my walls were soon hung with remembrances of my old home. Our bedrooms at the Hollies were rather a feature of the school. They were so arranged that the two little beds in the washstand could be screened off by a curtain, leaving the rest as a sitting-room. A table and two chairs stood in the window, and during the summer term we were allowed to prepare our lessons here instead of in the schoolroom, a privilege we much appreciated, but which was at once forfeited if we were caught talking during the study hours. It was a point of honour for each girl to make her bedroom as pretty as possible, and we vied with one another in the way of photo-frames, artistic table-covers, bookshelves, mats, and china ornaments. We were allowed to buy flowers on Saturday mornings for our vases, and must have been quite a source of income to the funny old man at a certain stall in the market, who kept us plentifully supplied according to the season. "'What was you wantin? Don't know em leastways by that name,' as I inquired for lilacs. "'Oh, I, loilacs. Here you have em, purple and white, and no charge extra for smell. Roses. I can bring em next week, both Glory John's and Jack Minnett's.' He meant Gloire de Dijon and Jacques Minot. "'Sweet peas is gettin' on greatly, and fair maids of France just ready for the fair maids who buy em with an attempt at a compliment which was severely repressed by Miss Percy, who whisked us away in a hurry lest the old man should become too familiar. But to return to Cathy, whenever possible I sat next her in school. I was her partner when we walked out in Crocodile, and she kindly initiated me into the mysteries of cricket, badminton, archery, and croquet, in all of which I had hitherto been profoundly ignorant. She was a most stimulating companion, a little older than myself, and brought up among a family of brothers, she had all the frank open ways of a boy, with the pretty attractive manners which often mark a much thought of only daughter. To hear her talk took me into a new world. Instead of the ordinary topics common among schoolgirls, the lessons, the games, the chances for the next prize, or grumbles at Miss Percy's tiresome rules, she would tell me about her home, and the delightful round of hobbies and interests which seemed to make up their life at Marshlands. I did not know before that people pressed ferns, collected shells and seaweeds, painted studies of birds and flowers, scoured the hills in search of antiquities, and held classes for wood-carving among the village boys. At my aunt's I had heard of none of these things. I had lived almost entirely in the nursery and schoolroom, and on the few occasions when I had been allowed to come down to the drawing-room, the conversation was certainly far from intellectual. "'But do your father and mother go out to picnics, and hunt for shells, and help you to paste seaweeds in books?' I asked, almost incredulously. "'Why, of course. They enjoy it as much as we do. Father is tremendously keen on butterflies, 
and Mother is making a collection of mosses and lichens. It wouldn't be half the fun unless they did everything with us. Just wait until you come to stay at Marshlands, and then you'll see for yourself. Mother means to ask you, I know." I very much hoped she would, as I could imagine no greater treat than a visit to Cathy's home. I longed to see all the places she had described, and to meet the people of whom she had spoken, and to share in the many tempting projects which she seemed to be planning. I was proud of her friendship, for she was popular at school, and could have taken her choice of playmates among girls who were both older and cleverer than myself. To be thus singled out as her special companion seemed an honour of which I felt scarcely worthy, and my letters to my father were mainly filled with ecstatic praises of my new friend. End of chapter 4